competitive 40K network presents Art of War. Strategy and tactics. Discussions with the best players on the planet. And now your host, Tim Penny and the Art of War coaches. Hello and welcome to the Art of War podcast. I'm your recurring host, Tim Penny. Mr. John Lennon is uh, taking a break, recovering from his latest GT takedown. We'll be talking about that in a future episode. Uh, I have uh, Moonlighting with us, uh, the one and only Nick Nanavati. Welcome aboard, Nick. Hey, Tim. Thanks for having me. Yeah, And uh, a reoccurring guest and Art of War coach, which who you can access in the uh, war room if you would like, Mr. Richard Siegler. I have come out of stasis just to be here with you guys. The robot awakens. <laughs> the Shazo. A very special episode, as uh, Richard just hinted with his uh, Shazo comment. Not talking about Admech, uh, Grey Knights, or Necrons today. We're actually talking about uh, Tau, Farsight, no less. Uh, we're talking about Nick's, or sorry, uh, Richard's latest uh, performance at the Atlantic City Open. He actually went seven and one with a faction you don't really hear about um, too often these days, and it's got a lot of people talking. More so than the uh, Drakari win, actually, in my opinion. So uh, without further ado, uh, Richard, why don't you go ahead and uh, break down your list and uh, tell us about it. Definitely Tau have been much maligned. Goonhammer has written that they are the worst faction in the game. They have something between a 33 and 39% win rate, uh, though it's been slowly climbing. And uh, hopefully I've been a little part of that as well. The list that I've been running is a pure Farsight Enclaves detachment. It has Commander Farsight himself, Nick's greatest demon. He's here. He's got his sword, the Dawnblade. Then I have the commander of the Cold Star in a battle suit. Um, he has um, the Warlord, of course. He has three Unity Devastation. And then he also has three Missile Pods and ATS and comes with a little Marker Drone. Then I have five Breacher teams, four of which have a Guardian Drone to give those Breachers a five-up invuln, and then a Marker Drone. And then I have one squad without any drones. I have the famous Riptide with the Amplified Ion Accelerator, two Fusion Blasters, the Drone Controller for that sweet plus one to hit on my drones, and then the uh, Velocity Tracker for plus one to hit against Fly. The meta is still loaded up with Fly. And then it comes with two Shielded Missile Drones. Then nine XV-8 Crisis Bodyguards with reactive countermeasures to ignore AP1 and 2 in shooting on that model with the Airburst, and then Veteran Contra to upgrade them pre-game to Ballista Skill 3+, and Weapon Skill 4+. Um, the models in there, there are eight models with two missile pods and ATS, and then one model with a shield generator and airburst, and then the iridium armor, um, as well as two other models have iridium armor. So three models with two up armor save, uh, be as defensive as possible there, just stack as much damage on them, and then finally they come with a marker drone. Then I've got a Pathfinder team with the grab drone, a legend in his own right, and then the MB3 uh, recon drone for a little shenanigans that we'll talk about later. For Vespid, Two Remora drones, and then two Devilfish with two gun drones each. That's the list, single battalion. So I uh, start with nine command points after the pregame spenters. And uh, yeah, this is this is what I've done the damage with. All right, Mr. Seeks, I got a million questions for you. I'm sure Tim does too. But first, I want to know, first and foremost, how does it feel to put an entire faction on your back? I mean, it's a heavy load, honestly. It's a, it's a burden to bear, but... The fish are pretty heavy? They're pretty heavy, honestly. Um, not having... Not having any crude on my back, though, has been a major boon. Oh, you gotta love the crude. <laughs> so I've been able to flex a little bit. But yeah, Tau, honestly, I love this faction. I did really well with them in 2019, winning best Tau 
and winning a ton of big events like Warzone Atlanta, Pro Tabletop, and Nova with them. So very experienced with the Tau, and it's great to have them back on the table, even though this is a very different list than the 8th edition Triple Riptide build. Let's talk about that. It is super different from your the what worked in 8th edition. Riptides and drones, all, none of that. Uh, you have a Riptide, you have some amount of drones, but certainly not like 40 drones in Triple Riptide like we're used to see. So what is the concept behind this new list you've come up with? Yeah, so in 8th edition, Tau were very much a board control and durability-based army. They had 40 shield drones surrounding three commanders and three riptides that did most of the damage. You'd try and either kill your opponent's ability to deal with your drones first, or you would go directly and try and deal with their anti-tank, which could kill the riptides. And at the end of the game, you'd either have three riptides and three commanders left, or you'd have like two riptides and the rest of the commanders and... Pretty much that's how you'd finish out every game. This list is very different. It doesn't have that core. It doesn't quite have the same level of defense because guess what? Only have 18 drones here, Nick. I know you have a smile on your face here and that. And only two of them are, sh are shield drones, effectively, the two shielded missile drones. Thank God. So the only two have five of Fiona Pain, so anytime I'm doing pass-offs, drones are just dying pretty much. Um, in addition to that, only one Riptide, so only one big, tough monster with a 3-up invuln hanging around. Instead, I have those nine Crisis Bodyguards, but they're defensive in a different way. Because that one model with the Airburst has a 2-up armor and ignores AP 1 and 2 in shooting, it can tank a ton of damage, and any damage that has AP 3 or AP 4, that's where you start using the drones. So you can actually soak up a lot of small arms fire that Riptides couldn't. Um, on the other hand here, how the list functions in practice is it's trying to keep the crisis unit alive as long as possible and soak as much of your opponent's damage. You want to force your opponent to commit to try and kill the crisis unit. They don't end up killing more than a couple models from it because you also have a 2 CP 5 Ophino pain strat. And then you respond by killing all their anti-tank over the course of two turns. And late game, you just can't deal with it. So it kind of plays in a similar way. But the difference here is that this army is doubles down on the board control. In 8th edition, You'd have drones for board control here and there, but pretty much not a lot else. This list has a ton of board control elements. It has the two Marmora drones, the Devilfish, all the two-man drone units, a bunch of five-man breacher units, and it also has Vespid. All of that is meant to as designed around being a points factory. This list, on average, scores about 38 uh, secondary points a game reliably, regardless of what the opponent is. And I'm sure we'll talk about that later with uh, the secondaries that I choose. But this army very reliably scores in the high 70s to low 90s. That's really impressive, because usually when you think of Tau, or when most people think of Tau, they don't think of a board control army. They're relatively fragile. Drones are relatively overcosted compared to before. And their points just aren't... Their points, their weapon updates, they haven't really gotten that ninth edition love yet. So yep. with, your, with your army being what it is relative to today's power level, Drukhari, Space Marines... Admech sisters, how are you able to keep up at all? Like, what is that like playing this faction? And the big major change for Tau was the Farsight Enclaves update in the Psychic Awakening book. Now, this came out right at the beginning of COVID when events started to uh, cancel and shut down. And so there weren't a lot of events where Tau players got to actually test these rules against the other top meta armies. I know I plan to bring Farsight Enclaves to Adepticon that year. What changed with Farsight Enclaves? Well, first of all, the that sub-faction became extremely efficient without marker lights because you get, if you're within 12 inches of your opponent, you count as having one more marker light, which if there's zero marker lights, you count as having one, so you reroll ones to hit. If you're within six inches of the enemy unit, you reroll ones to wound. So now you have a nice way to reroll wounds and you're getting rerolls without using marker lights. And marker lights was one of the biggest downsides of Tau in 8th edition. You get really good buffs, 
except on one particular unit, except you have to pay a ton of points, and those marker lights are unreliable, often hitting on fours or fives. So that was a problem of getting the efficiency on multiple units. The Farsight Enclaves build, because uh, the Crisis unit can spend two CP pregame for Veteran Cadra to become Ballistic Skill 3 and Weapon Skill 4+, plus, they are actually quite efficient without any marker lights other than just being near your opponent. Cal also got a 1 CP strat to just count the target as having one marker light. So in this list, instead of building in like three Kadra fire blades that are BS2 marker lights and such to try and get really efficient damage into one target, this Tau list actually can do a lot of damage spread across the board. Okay, It doesn't have to pick up one big unit um, very efficiently. Instead, it can pick up and split fire very efficiently into a lot of different things. So 9th edition has become a very MSU heavy edition. A lot of small units running all around. Farsight Enclaves is far more efficient dealing with this because of its ability, especially for this big crisis unit, to split fire and pick up, you know, four or five things in a turn. Yeah, I can especially see that because you are also making use of some really amazing strategies from back in the day, like one CP rerolls a wound on the entire crisis bomb. Yep. So with your army not being as durable as it was, and I see that not saying it's easy to kill now, but... um. It's not as durable as it was, and things like Fire Warriors and Devilfish and Remores, then none of that's really tough. So what do you actually, how do you score points for more than like a turn two without your opponent's retaliation just killing you? One of the big parts of that, especially, Tau's main weakness is, is primary points. How do you actually score primary points with this list? Tau don't have durable infantry comparative to other parts of the game, and they don't have a lot of it because you're spending a ton of points. I'm spending almost 1,200 to 1,300 of my points on four units. The Crisis unit, the Riptide, and two commanders. That means the vast majority of my small units are very, very cheap, and not they're not spending a lot of points on durability, so they can die very quickly. So I have to be very careful, with, especially with my OBSEC units, to control primary. And that is where the Devilfish come in. Because what I do is I offer the very difficult decision, do you trade, bring out your anti-tank to deal with my Devilfish, which have OBSEC? So if you end up killing the Devilfish, 10 Breachers pop out, as well as two units of two-man drones, so four drones total. All that pops out onto an objective. Either I'm three inches away and I can normally do it, or if I'm six inches away, I'll pop emergency disembarkation to get on there with my OPSEC. So not only do you have to commit your anti-tank, now you also have to commit several other guns to pick off those drone units that are going to land on the objective and my OPSEC units that are going to land on the objective. Now you're committing a lot of firepower to deal with a devilfish and some breachers. Once you commit that firepower, if you do, I then respond with my Riptide, the Commanders, and the Crisis Unit, and pick all that up so you can't do it again. And then I control the objective with my, my Crisis Units and the Riptide. So it's almost like a bait. You put your Devilfish mm -hmm. out there to get me to expose my anti-tank, then you kill my anti-tank, and then I can't stop the Crisis Suits and the Riptide for the rest of the game, and that's, they're just going to blow me up from there. Exactly. It's the double fold. Not only do I get to very likely control that objective, um, unless you commit literally every gun in your army to try and finish all that off, and once again I get to respond in that case, um, or you undercommit and I get the objective anyway, and I get to kill your anti-tank, which happens more often than you would think. Richard, how do you deal with uh, people that don't go for the bait and instead just uh, uh, use fast mobile obsec and try to just like charge the devilfish, um, possibly bait out some Overwatch, uh, which I know the four of the greater good, it can be devastating, but it's not quite as devastating as Talcep uh, for the greater good is. Did you ever have anyone that would deal with that? Would just charge the uh, Devilfish just to uh, put OBSEC onto the objective and try to deny your primary that way? Yeah, a clever man by the name of Nick Nanavati 
did that, did that several times in a row. <laughs> so the thing about the Devilfish is it doesn't have For the Greater Good, and when For the Greater Good, which is the supporting fire on Overwatch, was updated in 9th edition FAQ, um, the unit, you can only supporting fire for a, a fellow unit that also has that For the Greater Good rule. So Ooh, the Devilfish doesn't. I didn't, I didn't know that. that is, Drones do, infantry brutal. do, battlesuits do. But the devilfish doesn't. So that's did, that is a lot. I didn't know they there. both had to require. That is that is a brutal change. Yeah. So the devilfish does it will not supporting fire. It can Overwatch on its own, which is sixes. If it has the two gun drones in, inside, then that is twelve shots that are coming at you, and you can spend one CP to Overwatch on fives with a vehicle in the uh, Tau Codex. However, that's a lot of CP expenditure to try and get the devilfish to do damage. So oftentimes, what I have to do there is be very clever with putting the Devilfish on the objective, and then having an OPSEC unit outside, so five Breachers, that also have two drones that give them a five-up invuln. And then try and surround them with the Crisis unit and the Riptide. Make it so you actually can't, you have to not only shoot away those Breachers, but now you uh, are trying to make a charge move right next to the Crisis unit. Um, I can put Farsight there and uh, potentially try and do sh uh, heroic shenanigans because Farsight, even though he can be targeted if he's closer, um, the bodyguards can protect him. I can pass off wounds after he takes saving throws. And so potentially use him as a roadblock on that objective as well. Now the second point I want to add to this is the MSU charging onto my objectives is most armies are going to run out of stuff, especially obsec units, to contest my objectives in the, the later parts of the game. So I think Drukari is pretty much the only, un only army that just throws tons of cheap obsec onto objectives. And so that's the exact type of army, especially with the liquefier nerf, where you're actually putting the devilfish in front and then having the breachers behind with the drones. So that even if they put any random shots into them, even their dark lances, um, you're going to have a 5-up invuln and have some obsec survive on the objective. So, And that's even the case where um, you're tagging like a couple two-man drone units on the objective as well, just to have more bodies on it. Uh, I think that's the most effective way to play against that. So let me ask you this about just how your army plays in general. You have these devilfish that are out there kind of exposing themselves, getting your opponent to to act with something of substance so you can then blow it up and then continue on from there. What if What's stopping your opponent from just blowing up or initiating the shooting war onto your crisis unit or the Riptide? Are they really just that tough that it's not worth the attention? Typically, they're very tough against AP2 or less shooting. And then if it's AP3 or 4... And it doesn't have the volume. So say they have like, you know, six to eight lan dark lances. That's not enough to get to the drones I'm supporting. And then I have the one unit, well, the one model with the four-up invuln. And I'm going to spend a reroll on that four-up invuln just to keep the model alive. Most people don't bring enough anti-tank to get through the crisis unit effectively with drones in mind. The problem becomes when they have a lot of indirect fire or the ability to deal with the drones quick enough. And so this is why positioning the crisis suit unit is so important. Usually what I do is if I don't need the airburst model, I string that model back to an obscuring ruin and then place the drones within three behind the obscuring terrain. So the drones can't die except when I do pass-offs and I force them to shoot at the crisis unit and expose things like Dark Lances and their raiders just to try and do some hopeful damage against it. Uh, in the case where they have a lot of AP3 or 2 shooting, say for instance Imperial Guard Scions, that's where I need to use my board control elements like the Remoras, like the two Mandrone units to push that firepower away from the crisis unit. Mm -hmm. So really you're, you're tailoring your strategy to the specific type of weaponry your opponent yes, brings. exactly. That's super interesting. So what, how, you, 
You're talking about how you're playing the mission with these obsec or these devilfish full of obsec pinatas, basically, mm-hmm. and and these crisis suits that beta strike essentially. What it's not that's there's not much to your army. You have 1,200 points and four units, like you said, and then just like a couple devilfish full of stuff and a couple remores. If someone just removes your your chaff, all those devilfish, all those breachers, all those drones, relatively quickly, do you find you still have enough elements to play the mission with? That's a great question. So the big thing here is that you need to use your small units as efficiently as possible. And so typically what I do, this is a great uh, case with the Remoras, early game my army isn't terribly fast. It's decently fast, but it's not getting engage points very easily. So what I do there is I don't go for the three points on engage. I send one Remora Remora up the board to get get two engage and all fun points for me. All right, I don't get overly ambitious. The difference between one point and then a guaranteed engage the following turn as my army starts moving up the table and then I can get it very naturally turns three, four, five. You need to preserve your resources as much as possible. And that means shaving a point here and there. You need to do that. Same thing with the devilfish. I try and split the devilfish up and I try and commit one at a time so that, like I said, I commit the one devilfish if they commit their anti-tank to blow it up and the breachers inside. Then I get to respond to, against their firepower with my key units and then the late game, I have a devilfish floating around. And that devilfish is really important because it's my redundancy plan for deploy scramblers, which is a secondary I almost always take. If the Vespa can't do it in their deployment zone with natural deep strike, I need to be able to push a devilfish up into the middle of the board, have it survive, and disembark those breachers to uh, finish off the scramblers. So I need to be extremely precise with every single model in this army. Because like I said, as soon as you uh, lose enough units, you are going to start to struggle on the primary of the mission, uh, especially if they have a lot of obsec bodies being thrown around. So every single resource, the first early turns of the game, are really about preservation of resources, forcing my opponent to commit first and only against a small part of my army, and then I respond with full force into them. It's a lot of bait, baiting my opponent to overcommit in a particular place and then uh, delivering the the Monka, the killing blow. The Monka! Yes, indeed. Uh, not the- Monka <laughs> for move, M for move. That's how I remember it. <laughs> so, Richard, you uh, you kind of hinted at it a little bit when you talked about scramblers and your recon. But uh, when you built this list, uh, did you have secondaries in mind when you built the list, or was it more mm-hmm. that you built the list you wanted and then tailored the secondaries to that? How much of your secondaries uh, do you take as a universal game plan? You're like, this is my list. This is my core. These are the this is the one secondary I always take, or this is the two secondaries I always take. And how much of it do you leave uh, up at the table, uh, picking at the table, especially because Tau don't have their codex yet with their own specific secondaries? I'm really interested to hear about that and how that went your list design. So in list design, I very explicitly built this version to be able to do three secondaries in particular, because the main problem you're going to face with Tau, and especially factions without codex uh, secondaries, is that there are oft- there are a lot of armies at the top of the kind of rankings, top of the meta, that do not give up kill secondaries. So you can't pick one against them, which means by the time you pick your first and second secondaries, you're left with something where you're not getting a lot of points. You're looking at like five points if you do well on it, uh, like erase the banners on your home objective on battle lines, something like that. So with this list, I designed it so that I would get on average about 38 secondary points every single game, regardless of my, what my opponent is running and what is, regardless of what he's doing in the game. It's all in my power. So what are, what are these secondaries? I built it around number one, while we stand, we fight. The big crisis unit, the riptide, and the cold start commander. All three of them, while we stand, every single game, 
And in Atlantic City, I took it every single time and got 15 points out of it every single game. Next secondary that I built around, because those are really the resources that do damage. Now, the crisis unit would often take enough damage where I didn't have the full nine-man unit, and that's okay. Some of the games I had down to three or four models, and that was perfectly fine, because at the end of the day, you have to kill the whole unit to uh, deny those five points. Now, the next secondary is engaged in all fronts, another secondary that is in your power to score. And like I've mentioned, the Remoras and the Vespid are a major part of that. Being able to guarantee, even if I can't get some of the other slower elements of my army into a table quarter, those are the models that do it. So oftentimes I wouldn't go for the full 15 points on it. Instead, I was looking at about a 13. I'd do two turns of two points, just so I don't have to commit an extra resource for only a single point. And then um, on the other hand, and that's especially true if my opponent, I was going to be able to deny some of my opponent's secondaries, I'd feel very comfortable getting two points in a turn. And then the later turns, when I've killed enough of my opponent's army, um, and the remainder of their army really has to be on objectives, uh, I try and um, then go for the three points. Then finally, I did deploy scramblers as the other one that this army is based around. Like I mentioned previously, getting the one in your deployment zone, super easy, you can do it whenever. The midfield one, relatively easy with the Pathfinder unit, which can um, pregame move and it moves seven inches, so it can be set up if you get first turn to just de um, do the um, deploy scramblers in the middle of the table, turn one, get it out of the way, and that leaves turn two and turn three open for your opponent's deployment zone if they leave a gap with the Vespid. Um, typically what would happen, and this is kind of how the list was designed, most of the list is long-range firepower. Like the key units are all basically 36 plus inches. So I get the missile pods on the crisis unit, missile pods on the Cold Star Commander, and then I have the Riptide with his Amplified Ion Accelerator. All of that does a tremendous amount of damage at range. So I gave my opponent the tough choice by picking Scramblers that, are you going to screen this out for turns two and turn three and prevent my Vespid from getting into your deployment zone? If so, you are sacrificing quite a few units over those turns that could have been standing on objectives, that could have been coming towards me and killing my cheap units. You're instead using them in your deployment zone to screen me out. And I would take an advantage uh, I would take advantage of that by pushing my army more towards the middle of the table because they had less things coming at me. And so I'd get a better primary score in that case. But I had the redundancy plan of if the Vespid can't deep strike in their deployment zone to scramble there, they move 14 inches. So if I can find a nice safe space for them in the middle of the table, um, or if it's turn three, I could still put them back in my deployment zone very safely and the next two turns with that 14 inch move, move them up so that they could scramble on turn five. The follow-up redundancy plan is the Devilfish, being able to push a Devilfish into midfield and disembark uh, the Breachers. So I have several redundancy plans to make sure, and at the same time that I'm trying to get uh, Scramblers, I'm also getting engaged in all front points. So it was a very natural overlap uh, between a lot of my chaff units, that they're doing a lot of things at once and not just one thing. I want to take a whole section of this episode to talk about all the variations to your tile list and the units you've tried, because I know you've been working on this forever. Yep. But one one thing that struck me is for scramblers, have you considered stealth suits to just deploy kind of very close to your opponent and scramble your enemy's deployment zone turn one? This is what Will Abeles has done, and I played him at uh, Atlantic City, and he just deployed them basically on my deployment line as his first drop. So that if he went first, he'd get deploy scramblers in my deployment zone done. And then pretty much with the rest of his build, he would get it no problem, kind of like mine. Um, I like the stealth suits for that. I also like being able to push back infiltrating units with them. They're very pricey, though. And so because there's 78 points for the three models, 
I found that I would rather just have more OPSEC bodies because at the end of the day, I think Tau struggles the most with holding down primary points. And I felt like the uh, stealth suits didn't help enough there. And like you said, uh, because you were the person I mostly played against with Tau, you were a big part of making sure the stealth suits were redundant because they were very expensive for trying to deny primary points uh, against your sister's builds and, and Death Guard, etc. Mm -hmm. I found like I wanted more breachers there instead. Yeah. I definitely haven't missed the stealth suits from your testing since they've been cut. The more breachers, I think, is the answer. But And, and to emphasize that point, throughout, played eight games at ACO, I deployed Scramblers in seven out, out of eight of those games. The only time I didn't was against Will Ablez because he went on a, a mission to kill all of my infantry models. And at this, that got him tabled, and I ended up pulling it out in the end and giving him zero on while we stand. But he very he had the tools to actually kill all my OPSEC. He, he went after the Devilfish turn one, and then he went after the OPSEC with all his indirect fire and was able to shut that down. So your army is really flexible in that if your opponent tries to adapt their strategy to, to blocking your points factory of I'm going to get in these engages, these scramblers, these while we stands, they go all in on killing the crises or all in on killing your infantry or whatever it is. You can make up that ground by just excelling in other elements of the game. So I do really like that aspect of your list. Yeah, it, this, unlike when you think of Tau, you think of them as a shooting damage dealing army, right? That Tau can deal a lot of damage in shooting, but it's not the primary focus of what you're doing. Oftentimes, and throughout this was true throughout Atlantic City, is I gave up some of my shooting or I only went after a couple key targets instead of overcommitting to try and do maximum damage because I was at the end of the day, you're playing the mission. I wanted to kill enough things that were on objectives to deny my opponent primary points and at the same time ensure I got my secondary points. And if that meant doing less damage than I could, I would take that. I would always take the points first. So let's talk about that, though. Tau are historically a very shooting army, and this is no different. Mm -hmm. And all of your shooting in this build needs line of sight. There's no SMS. There's no air bursts in this version. There's, There's one. one. There's one, one air one. burst. <laughs> yes. Um, and the line of sight in ninth is higher than it's ever been. Like mm -hmm. line of sight blocking terrain is is a mandatory to play in competitive events these days. So how do you play Tau without seeing stuff? All right. So... This is, like I said, this army is not about tabling people. I, you can table people, uh, if they, especially if they give you the opportunity to do by playing overly aggressive. But at the end of the day, you are not trying to kill every model in their army. You're trying to very precisely kill particular units. I primarily focused down on killing their anti-tank, their ability to deal with the crisis unit. I tried to prioritize killing that. Second, I, at the same time, I was trying to prioritize killing things that were on objectives to force them to put new things out there the following turn. And because they would have to put those new things, eventually they'd start putting key units, which were either powerful characters or um, units that wanted to be up the board uh, trying to kill my own cheap units. So I would prioritize killing those things that they wanted to hold down objectives with, forcing them to put real units to stand on objectives. And in that way, I took a lot of pressure off the front of my army. Um, overall, the list is can trade damage away to make sure that you're scoring enough points and denying your opponent enough points at the same time. It's okay to trade away damage with this Tau list because mm -hmm. you can always... The thing is, with the list, if you've prioritized focusing down the key units that can deal with the crisis unit, if that unit fires for all five turns, and it doesn't have to fire into their whole army, it just has to fire into key, a couple key units, you will ensure that your opponent runs out of units. Even Drukari armies are going to run out of units against the efficiency that you, you put forward. Now... In terms of getting around line of sight blocking, 
There's a couple things. First, obscuring runes in the middle of the table. This army is fast enough to touch the obscuring runes when you want to and be able to shoot through them. And I use this to my advantage at ACO where once you hit the top tables, there were two large L's in the middle of the table that were obscuring. And once you touch them, you could see through one of them to most of the objectives on the battlefield. Because they had tons of windows. They had tons of windows and doors. So you'd be able to look, you'd be able to draw a line of sight through those. And so a big part of my plan was using my mobility in those matchups to force the issue of my opponent. If they went out and touched multiple objectives, I could see five of the six objectives, for instance, the next turn, and do crippling damage to them. So I used it, I tried to use be relatively aggressive to make sure that I could see four or five plus objectives on a turn. In addition to that, I also have um, the mobility of the Remora drones. These were very useful for getting behind my opponent's ruins, move blocking them back there if they didn't move very fast, and in particular, being able to kill little units. So for instance, against Sean Naden, he fire and faded a Darkland Scourge unit. I then sent a Remora back there, and with the reroll ones to hit, reroll ones to wound from being close, I was able to pick away at those Dark Lances. And yes, they were obscuring, but they, I was able to kill enough of them to render them ineffective in future turns. This is very true about, say, for instance, um, you know, in, in the Talmir matchup, you can get back there, kill their drones, and then be able to go into a key unit. Now they don't have drones. Yeah, let's talk about the Remoras and because, <laughs> like, they're a unit that pretty much no one knows what they do, myself included, even though I played against them. Um, what is a Remora and why is it here? Cool. It's a Forge World unit. It's of course the, it is. It's the only unit I'm running that's from Forge World. Um, it's a 60 point drone. All right. It's just a drone and it's an aircraft and flyer battlefield so it's a, role. It's a flying drone. It's a flying like drone. A flyer drone. Exactly. But it's not a vehicle. A, it's not a vehicle. It's just drone. Okay. Uh, in addition to that, it's five wounds, it's T5, it has a three-up armor save and counts as in cover against shooting attacks, and then it has ballistic skill four, so if it's near the drone control, it hits on threes. Otherwise, it's hitting on fours, and typically it's close enough with Farsight Enclaves to reroll ones to hit and ones to wound. It has two long-range burst cannons, which are 36-inch range, and strength five, no AP1 damage, and then it has two Remora missiles, which if you are within 12 inches for aggressive footing, counting as one marker light, and then you spend the one CP to count as another marker light or hit it with a marker light for two, you then also hit with uh, the missiles on ballistic skill. And uh, those are strength eight, AP two, D3 damage. So decent amount of firepower, but what they're amazing at is they move 20 to 30 inches, and so they can just instantly go get you engage points. And on top of that, for T5, five wounds, three up armor save, two up in counting as in cover, they're actually really annoying to deal with. So there were plenty of times where, for instance, Sean Naden shot a couple of AP4 Dark Lances at me, and I just happened to boxcar the roll, and the, <laughs> the drone survived. Um, Nick Nanavati shot me with a bunch of liquefier racks, yeah, and happened. I just kept making four-ups, and the it survived. Sometimes. So the thing that was key about them, and I've seen this, regardless of the number that I'm running, I went down to two just because I, needed, I felt like I needed the extra resources, especially that second Devilfish in the list. So the, with them, they often take a lot more firepower than your opponent really wants to commit to them. And at that point, they are not putting that firepower downrange to kill your drones, to kill your devilfish, etc. Because they want to get rid of this resource in front of them that can go pick away at five witches that are standing on an objective or whatever it is. So I found them incredibly useful in every situation. Scoring points, killing things that were trying to hide, finishing off wounded units to deny grind them down points, which people often took against me. All of it, they just do it so, so well. 
So and move blocking. The move blocking was essential. Let me just give you an example of why this is so powerful. So I'm playing on Vital Intelligence against Jukari player. He goes ahead, moves advanced the his one of his raiders up to uh, one of those two objectives that's kind of near. They're in like a clump near each other. He puts the raider on one objective, didn't get a high enough advance roll to touch the second one, but he's within six inches of it. So he could easily emergency disembark onto the objective. Well, guess what? It's my turn. I want to kill that raider. I want to give him five on primary, but I don't want him emergency disembarking OPSEC onto the other objective. So I sent the remora right out there, got me an engage point, and I move blocked that objective. So even with that emergency disembark, he couldn't place models touching the objective because of my base. Beautiful. Look at those tactics. Exactly. That's tactics. High-level stuff. That's the stuff you learn in the war. You can't <laughs> learn that anywhere else. No. So uh, this is what I do against Nick in the war room all the time. Maybe you learn in part two of the podcast. <laughs> but uh, this was the exact type of thing that I did throughout the tournament. A lot of just annoying placement uh, things with the remoras. Uh, just move blocking things behind non-breachable terrain at ACO was very possible too. So you've definitely driven home the fact that Tau, in at least this iteration, is a very precise mechanical movement-based army. You need to mm-hmm. have, get the most value out of every single insignificant drone squad you have. You need to make sure you're on point with target priority and selection, and, and you can't waste the little resources you have, basically. Yep. So... How do you practice that? How do you how does someone do that? Like it's one thing to copy and paste your list and go take it to a tournament, but you're gonna suck at it unless you really understand all those nuances. So how do you learn that? So honestly, I was very down on Tau for a while, and you saw that. I didn't play Tau very much on the Art of War stream, um, but then uh, the Monka ruling that started to come into effect in January with the ability to fall back and shoot because you act as stationary, and then that was confirmed in a recent FAQ um, and at ACO. So that started me uh, getting to think about Tau again, uh, because not being able to fall back and shoot at the army was just brutal. Now, with Farsight, you can have two instances of it. That's enough redundancy and safety there that I feel very comfortable running Tau and being able to do damage from shooting again. So what did I start doing? I started experimenting with different lists based around trying to flood the board. Tau have so many cheap little units that can, you know, be... Uh, they have crew, they could, but Vespid are so much better, Nick. Uh, trust me on that. So they have the, these types of units that can just be flooding the board. So how do we put this all together into a list that can that can effectively do things? That's where the damage dealing units came from. I need to kill enough each turn that I can deny primary points and at the same time kill the key things that could do return damage to me, particularly the crisis unit. Because once again, we haven't talked about it, but this unit is also a melee beast, right, Nick? This unit can get you out a lot of tricky situations because it can do damage in melee through mortal wounds, through a 1cp strat when you make a charge move, you do mortals on 3-ups, and then if you're near a commander within 3 inches of one, you can spend 1cp to reroll full hit and wound rolls, which means with pregame, a veteran cadre, they're hitting on 4s, rerolling, and then they're strength 5, AP1 from ATS, and rerolling to wound. So I was... A lot of players tried to use tricky things like the Witch's No Escape or Morvane's Agonizer, um, didn't end up mattering because I would come right in there with a crisis unit and butcher them and be able to get out of that trap, get rid of their OPSEC, and continue moving on with my game plan. So this list builds in, it's drawing on a really wide range suite of stratagems that are its actual additional power level. And a lot of these are from Psychic Awakening, but like you mentioned before, there's a couple core codex stratagems that I've used that really elevate the... Amount, uh, the amount of things and amount of damage I can do in this list. So command and control node is one of them. One CP commander gives up his shooting. One of the reasons, another reason Farsight is here. 
His shooting is, is uh, terrible. So he gives up his shooting, lets my crisis unit reroll wounds. All of a sudden, it's a unit hitting on threes, often rerolling ones. Um, and for two CP, I could just count the target as having five marker lights to hit on twos. And in that case, I'm also rerolling wounds. So the efficiency of this unit is through the roof. I also have a one CP strat that ignores the benefits of cover. And because it doesn't specify uh, the uh, benefits to cover for being in terrain uh, to your saving throw, it just ignores dense cover and light cover, both of those benefits. And that's for the entire unit shooting, whether you're splitting fire or not. So between those two really powerful strats, this army has the tools to deal a tremendous amount of damage very efficiently over those first couple turns of the game. And in most of the games that I played, I prioritized killing their ability to get on my side of the board and deal with my primary objectives. Because like I've mentioned previously, defending your primary is honestly the biggest issue with Tau. They don't have the durable board control um, that you really want. Uh, they don't have Admech 20 Ranger blobs. They don't have Drukari. I just have a thousand obsec units that are all over the board. And if you kill my Raiders, they're on the objectives now. They don't have that. They have a decent amount with my Devilfish and Breachers, but it, it's not... It doesn't have the same type of redundancy as these other armies. It's not the fundamental thing I'm doing. So your target priority absolutely needs to be at dealing with your opponent's primary to reduce it, and at the same time preventing their fast units from getting on your side of the board. In most of the matchups that I played at Atlantic City, I prioritized shifting the deployment zone to something that was more advantageous. And personally, Dawn of War is the worst and most difficult of the deployments for my Tau army, because as I've said, it's not amazingly mobile. My crisis unit can't go from one place to another place very quickly. It often has to use charge moves to get to different areas. Um, so how do I actually try and effectively combat armies that can be in all four quarters very easily? It's creating a hammer and anvil situation. So oftentimes in matchups against speed armies, I'd, re I'd shift my army in such a way and over-deploy on one side to recreate hammer and anvil. In that case, I create distance between my army and my opponents. And that was a really key technique I used throughout Atlantic City in most games in order to limit the damage my opponent could do at the same time because I would use terrain defensively to protect my army from shooting as I shifted uh, the deployment zone and shifted the dif dis distance away from my opponent's army. There's a lot to unpack there. I think what you hit at the end there is super interesting about terrain turning it into Hammer and Anvil. That's, it's a very natural thing to turn Dawn of War into Hammer and Anvil because uh, you want to be safe. You want to be able to, to control the amount of damage your opponent can do to you mm -hmm. uh, via line of sight and range. So you turning it into uh, increasing the distance between you and your opponent from 24 inches in Dawn of War style to like a 40-inch thing in like a Hammer and Anvil by just deploying on one corner and you deploy on the opposite corner, it really does give you a lot more breathing room. And as a Tau player, you know, you're always, you're assuming or one would assume that the Tau player is trying to turn it into Dawn of War. They're excited about that. I get to shoot you faster, but you're actually approaching it from the opposite perspective. I will take my time. I will get in the right positions over time because I'm trying to preserve resources early so I can win late. That kind of mentality. Exactly. Because at the end of the day, I'm taking while we stand. So I don't want the opportunity for my opponent to actually kill the crisis unit. Because if they kill a crisis unit, they're probably going to be able, they probably have enough damage to try and finish off um, the cold and the mobility to kill the cold star. And in that case, I get five points out of it because the Riptide survives. What I really want to do here is get rid of enough of their resources over the first two, three turns that I then walk onto all the objectives uh, with the crisis unit, start making charge moves, um, start making... Um, start move advancing the devilfish up up the board so that late game I get that very natural like 15-15 in the final two turns and that's really where I came back. For most of the tournament I played at a points deficit and 
that was like turns one, two, three. So for instance, against Will Ablez, I had like 14 points and he had like 54 points. Or yeah, he had like 48 points, something like that. And I was able to come back in that situation because I left it so that I was going to get enough points in those final two turns on my primary and my secondaries through all we stand, finishing off scramblers, etc., that I'd be able to come back. That's a hard thing to do. Um, it's I've a got, lot of pressure. It's when you're losing the first few turns, you know, maybe a bottom of a turn, you have that advantage coming, or so you can lean on that a little bit. But when you're losing, it's easy to just keep on losing. You have to really have a plan, like a multi-turn plan to turn that ship around. What does that look like for you when you're playing? So when you're behind in these games, it's often intentionally so. Now, sometimes it's not, and things are, just aren't going your way. But let's just say we're playing in such a way where we're looking at getting 5 to 10 points on primary. Let's just say 5, for, for argument's sake, on primary the first two turns. All right? We go ahead. Uh, so turn 2, turn 3, we get 5 points. That leaves a potential 30 points on turns 4 and 5. And so max of 40 primary, which that doesn't sound bad. But you need to put yourself in a position to get those 15 points. The thing is, if you're able to do enough damage to your opponent's army, um, and, or at the same time deny them primary points, which is what the one thing I keep talking about, is I often overcommitted my damage on particular objectives to bring them from a 15 or a 10 to a 5. And that balances out in the end because I have this really safe late game. Not only did I kill enough of their units, but then they don't have enough to contest my objectives, and I get a 15-15 on turns 4 and 5. This is, I, I very actively went into most games planning on how the entire game was going to go. And this type of forethought is very common of trying to be successful with Tau. It's very true in 8th edition. It's very true in 9th. You need to prioritize what you're going to kill so it can't do return damage to the things that are most vulnerable. And then you need to prioritize defend, defending your primary points while denying them primary points. Um, it's when you start getting zeros multiple turns that it starts getting tough. Um. Yeah, it makes perfect sense to me. I, I really like the way you, you approach the game, basically saying, all right, your army's not as powerful as everybody else's. That's just a fact. So instead of trying to play them for five turns and just kill them in a straight mm -hmm. of war, which you're not going to win, you know, statistically your army is just mathematically worse, um, you're going to choose to play an uneven game where they overcommit resources to kill like a devilfish that you don't care about or more drones, and then counterpunch the things that matter to you mm -hmm. so you know they might still have more stuff but you kill all the stuff that actually matters and from there you can translate that to a win so that exactly. it, to play tau obviously requires a tremendous amount of knowledge and understanding about the game and your army and all that so and your opponent's army and your opponent's army yeah is that something you develop with just reps over and over again yeah to go back to that uh, previous question about how do people replicate this it's about repetition uh, you need to play as many matchups as possible. You need to think about the matchups, and you need to have a clear plan going into each game. Um, in the case where you can't practice against every single list in the game, even us here at Art of War, where we play tons and tons of live stream games on the Art of War channel, we don't play against every single list variation of every faction often. Okay, that's just impractical. So you need to be able to come up, look at your opponent's list, and very quickly analyze what are the key threats. How do I deploy against them to minimize their effectiveness? So for instance, in the game against uh, Rob, round one, with his Space Wolf shoot, Dreadnought shooting list, I deployed in such a way where I, turn one, I could have went after Dreadnoughts. Instead, I just went after his board control, his incursors, and his vanguard so that I get rid of his ability to contest my objectives. And I placed my crisis unit at an angle where it couldn't, could only be shot by a single Dreadnought the following turn because I did a lot of pre-measuring on where his Dreadnoughts could go. 
Then the following turn after he committed his dreads to objectives and only killed cheap units that I let him kill, I then responded and started killing dreadnoughts. So I, I very clearly prioritized getting rid of board control in this case because it, at the same time, meant that my crisis unit wouldn't take a lot of damage. Almost I didn't even like take a risky playing, play. uh, like chess on the tabletop with your pieces instead of playing 40k where you're rolling dice and seeing how much damage you do to a dreadnought. Yeah. You're taking guarantee. In my crisis, it's going to obliterate five incursors. No problem. Um, but that's that's a means to an end, an overall strategy. Exactly. Like so throughout the history of your Tau experience in ninth edition, like you said, you've been down on them. You put the time into them. You, you've had Viorla stuff. There's Vespids. There's no Vespids. There's Stealth Suits. There's no, I can't keep up. Um, why this version as opposed to all the other variations? And do you think this is the final form or are there still ideas you want to try out? Yeah. So, for instance, I was running like eight to nine airburst models against Nick, sometimes pure airburst. Um, I ended up going with the missiles for two reasons. One, because Jukari is the main threat. If I was going to do well at this tournament, I was going to have to beat Jukari players. And the problem with Airburst is it's 18-inch range, which means I am in the threat range of pretty much their entire charging army uh, on turn two onward. I thought that that's just too risky. Even though you can shoot indirect uh, through terrain pieces, I felt with, because of Cult of Strife ignoring Overwatch, it was just far too risky. They get one unit in, then they charge the rest of their army in. So instead of that, I wanted a approach where I could methodically kill things from range and, like I said, turn things like Dawn of War into Hammer and Anvil to create a larger gap between me and my opponent. I wanted to be able to cripple my opponent in their deployment zone so they couldn't put a lot of things on objectives and they couldn't contest my objectives. And so missile pods help the most there. Missile pods are also an excellent tech choice into the dreadnought-heavy Space Marine list that we're seeing. Airbursts are terrible into that. So I did that for those two reasons. And uh, it paid off. It was amazing against Drukari, helped me win against Space Marine Dreadnoughts and, and Ravenwing. So I was a major fan of the, air, the missile pods in this match, in this kind of um, setting. In addition to that, I also went with missile pods over airburst because um, the terrain at ACO was, had a lot of windows and doors, which meant once I tagged the terrain with my models, I could then draw a line of sight through those windows and doors through the obscuring terrain. If it was, say, for instance, like some WTC terrain where there's pure... There's ruins with no windows and doors, so you can't actually draw a line of sight through them. That's where things like airburst greens a lot more value, because you can actually move your army up closer to the middle of the table safer, then do damage while keeping them safe. So I prioritize because of the ACO terrain and because of the meta, uh, like these these Jukari players and the uh, Space Marine Dreadnought list that I was very scared of, I went with Missile Pods. And then for Vespids, I just wanted an extra redundancy plan for... Uh, forcing my opponent to put extra screening units out so that my missile, my 36-inch missile pods and my Riptide and Cold Star could actually kill extra things if my opponent tried to deny Scramblers. Even if I didn't score it in the first three turns, I got enough of their units out into the open that I got to kill more things than I should have otherwise. And that was a huge part of my plan. And it meant that late game, I always had an advantage. By turn three, I usually turned the tide and started having a major advantage because my opponent had to commit extra resources they didn't want to just because I picked Scramblers. And they were trying to deny it. All right. Well, that, that, that's awesome. Um, a lot of interesting tech choices in this Tau army, and like each one's got very specific roles to fill. Like, I mean, I've watched you develop this thing over months, yeah. if not a year. So uh, I know where it started and where it's come. So kudos to you for making turning water into wine, Mr. Seeks. <laughs> I appreciate well, that. Well done. Tim, is there anything else you wanted to ask while we have the robot over here? Sure. Uh, I would just just some generic small level stuff for aspiring uh, chef sweeze out there. Um, 
We talked a lot about the high-level stuff. Uh, How about just uh, two real simple questions? Uh, One, what does your standard CP budget look like? I know you and I have talked back and forth a lot about multiple armies, and one of the things you always stressed was just having a generic CP plan for your command points. And and then two, just generically, um, I know deployment is very much matched but mission-dependent, but if you're trying to paint a picture, because this is a podcast, you know, so we have to express it via words, uh, someone who wants to grab this army, grab your list, listen to your techniques, your tactics, and get into your headspace. Um, describe what an ideal take all comers kind of deployment would look like for them. Um, just either against like a shooting army or a fast melee army or a board control army. Just what would it look like? What what units do you drop first? What units of theirs are you looking for them to drop first before you commit yeah. uh, your big great stuff? Questions. Or is it kind of cookie cutter? Yeah, those are really great questions, Tim. So, uh, Starting off with the command point situation, CP discipline is a huge part of my philosophy towards the game. There's no random Nignanavati rerolls going on here. That is just not a facet um, because when you think about it, um, pre-game stratagems, I'm going to head and spending three CP. I'm spending two on veteran Kadra and then one for an extra relic for a prototype system. So I'm going to start at nine with single battalion. That seems like you know a fairly decent amount of command points to start with, but Tau have an overabundance of really powerful one command point stratagems. So for instance, like I said, command and control node to reroll wound rolls on the crisis unit. The 1CP ignore the benefits of cover. Super powerful 1CP count the target as having one marker light. 2CP counts as five marker lights. All this stuff, and if you'll notice, they all interact with battle suits because at the end of the day, and this is why I didn't go towards Viorla, you are spending your command points in the crisis unit, by and large. Almost all your command points you're spending are on making sure that the crisis unit is max efficiency those first couple turns so that it picks up exactly what you need to, that there's no mystery. You just get the extra efficiency from these stratagems to make sure it happens. So with that said, spending random command points elsewhere uh, is, is the way to where late game you don't have the CP to do what you need to. Other things, I usually like having three CP uh, at the start of my turn. So start of my turn, uh, if I have two CP, I then go up to three uh, by gaining one. I like to be in that situation. The reason is I always want, if I'm not able to deal with my opponent shooting because he's playing the trading game very efficiently with me or he just has a lot of it and hasn't committed yet, I need to save two CP in the bank for five of Fino Pain on the crisis unit in case he commits that turn. The other reason I like having that extra CP, is, uh, those extra CP is because potential... Um, uh, emergency plays, um, emergency disembarkation from the Devilfish. When I commit the Devilfish, I often commit them such that they're touching one objective and within six inches because of their their length of another objective. And that way, if my opponent does the damage, like I said, and they go for the killing the Devilfish, they actually need to kill um, four drones and ten breachers as well to deny me the primary points. And that in that case, I get more fire, more shoot, more of their shooting out onto objectives. So. At the end of the day, uh, with your command points, I am often saving those last couple ones that don't go towards um, the crisis unit and their damage dealing potential. Those other ones are saved for ensuring primary points. And so two CP auto pass on morale is a potential I could use, though very rare due to the MSU nature of the list. Um, and I also like use just having CP in the bank for defensive abilities, like uh, um, the five up Fino pain on the crisis unit. So. Typically, you're going to spend most of your CP on damage in those first couple turns when your opponent commits their forces, and then you're going to save a couple in the bank just so you have them to ensure plays that will guarantee primary points. 
Don't forget about the deployment. How do you deploy this army? And then deployment. So what I typically do is I deploy the Pathfinders as the first unit down. And the reason is, is because they have a pregame move. So if my opponent has, um, you know, units that could disrupt that, I want to, I want to put the Pathfinders in a, a space where they are gonna, they either don't want to put their infiltrating units, or if they put their infiltrating units there, I'm gonna get line of sight with my shooting if I go first and take care of them uh, immediately. So that's one consideration. I also am thinking about setting up the recon drone and the grab drone. In the rare matchup uh, where they have the ability, the terrain is really poor, and I actually need a resort the crisis unit, which I almost never do, pretty much only do it against triple bomber admech. If I have to do it, I need to use the recon drone to bring them in uh, within, um, I can bring them in um, 1.1 inches away or more um, because there's no restriction on that. So I can use that 2CP strat from the Tau Codex, which most people have no clue is still exists. Um, in addition, I want to set up the grab drone, which is a 12-inch aura of minus D3 to charges. And this is very true against early aggressive armies, say, for instance, Blood Angels, Death Company. That grab drone needs to be in position to prevent any turn one damage that I'm going to take, be in a really annoying position. So, and then finally, I need to think about deploying scramblers in midfield turn one if I go first, um, or even if I go second, setting it up by getting behind a, a ruin. So the Pathfinders can potentially move up, use uh, the 1 CP, move 2d6, and be in a position where they could very easily scramble the midfield. Um, even if I put them in a fairly defensive position. So I really like the Pathfinders as the first drop because they kind of set up what I'm going to be able to do. Then I like deploying uh, the Breacher squads that aren't in Devilfish, just in my backfield, hiding away, just two nonsense drops that don't matter. Uh, if my opponent doesn't really have shooting, then sure, they can go on objectives or out in the open, no problem. Uh, then I like deploying the Devilfish because I kind of have a sense of where the Riptide's going to go, and the Riptide is fast enough that can kind of move and switch positions over the course of the game. Um, it's the Crisis unit that I typically deploy last because of its it only moves 8 inches. And so it needs to get in a position where it's going to get the best firing lanes, turn 2, turn 3, onward. Um, and so I want to kind of see where my most of my opponent's army is. The Crisis unit's last. Put the Devilfish down. Uh, Remora drones, if you're deploying them, go ahead and put them uh, behind you know, ruins as much as possible behind things that block them, cargo containers, whatever it is, and you're going to probably send one out turn one to get you two points on engagement all fronts and go from there. Then I, I start putting down the commanders. I put them down before the Riptide and before the Crisis units because the Cold Star can just move between flank and flank, and Farsight can move in advance and get where he needs to, um, but he's typically, at this point, I put the Cold Star first and then I put Farsight, because Farsight typically wants to be giving up his shooting to let the Crisis unit reroll wounds. So once I put Farsight down, you kind of know where the Crisis unit's going to go. But I typically save him for um, one of those last couple drops. And then the Riptide and the Crisis unit go down. You played Sieg 6,000 times, you know where the Crisis units go before deployment. <laughs> <laughs> that is true. Like You can kind of piece out where they're going to go based on if they don't have a lot of long-range firepower or firepower the Crisis unit's scared of, I just put them on the line ready to play aggressive and get the angles on their objectives ASAP. If they have scary firepower, I need to play a little more conservatively with them, force them, like tempt them with the Devilfish and stuff to bring out that firepower, then respond with the Crisis unit, kind of like we talked about. Right. Well, thank you, Mr. Siegs, for coming on and talking about Tau. If someone wants to learn Tau more in depth or just learn 40K, what, where can they go? They can go to the Art of War, Nick. They What's can, that? They can go to the Art of War YouTube channel where we play tons of Tau games. But if they want even more in-depth knowledge about Tau discussions like this that we're having, they can join the War Room. 
where we have Tau clinics, we have Tau coaching games. Yes, we do. We do indeed. And Nick has uh, has played against them several times in those coaching games. Mm -hmm. So he's learned a lot as well. So if you want to learn about Tau, join the War Room, major international community of uh, players discussing uh, competitive 40K all the time. You can join our Discord channel, which has an active Tau chat as well. And, uh, you know, join us to talk about this wonderful faction. Especially, they will eventually get a codex sometime, and I am going to be at the forefront of discovering uh, the best lists. All right. Well, thank you uh, very much for your time, Richard and Nick. Uh, War Room members and uh, Patreon subscribers, we will see you over in part two. Uh, where we're going to discuss the real deep tech and the high-level stuff. Uh, and for the rest of you, if you really liked what you heard here, that is only a taste, only a sample of what you can experience in Part 2 and in the War Room. So go ahead and uh, head on over to artofwar.com, hit that subscribe button, and we'll see you in Part 2. Like what you just listened to? Check out Art of War Down Under, where we break down armies and new rules. Theartofwar40k.com This episode was brought to you by the Competitive 40K Network.